Welcome to A State of Mind, a podcast where ancient wisdom meets our crazy modern world. This is Julian Royce. And I hope everyone out there is doing okay and taking care of yourselves. Our very challenging times have gotten even more challenging. Um, I'm going to upload this at the very front here. Quick announcement. If you have been enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation. Even 5 or $10 really makes a big difference. Um, so head over to patreon.com backslash estateofmind or stateofmindplay.com. And... Something that I want to start doing with this podcast and show is sharing more of the feedback that I get from all of you out there listening. So I got this message from ZB in California, who wrote about the episode on sexuality and Buddhism. And he wrote, he sent a message that says, your interview with Ben Jaffe is very well done. I just wanted to express my appreciation and I echo your sentiment that it is better to keep talking about what sexuality means and what kind of values we want to have around it, rather than sweeping it away as something inextricably creepy. So thank you, and I, of course, couldn't agree more. <sighs> and now for today's episode. I am recording this on June 2nd, and the world is literally aflame following the detention and murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Um, the situation seems to be getting inflamed all the further by our own president, who has responded to the protest not with an attempt at understanding or addressing the underlying causes for them, but instead by threatening to order the United States military to intervene and stop the protest. Um, the, you know, the situation and the videos appearing online um, and what I've seen on my social media feed, some of them are incredibly disturbing, you know, images at these protests of police basically fighting the protesters. Um, and of course, the video with George Floyd is, is incredibly disturbing. So if you decide to watch that, you should know that ahead of time and prepare yourself. Um, so I'm really at a loss for words here. But I think that this is an important time for us to all look into the mirror, so to speak, and reflect on our own values and what we really believe is true and important. And just to reflect on, to take in, to consider all the injustices in the world today. Um, and when I do this, I think that this podcast is one small way that I can do something to communicate a positive message and to try to help. Um, so I want to thank my friend Sammy for for pointing that out to me. I was talking with him the other day. I think one of the things that we can do that I want to encourage us all to do is to take care of your own health, your own well-being, and your own mental health, to pay attention to your own states of mind, and to use them, engage with them in a skillful way that contributes to well-being in the world rather than detracting from it. You know, sometimes that would mean taking time to yourself, solitude. Sometimes that could mean talking with a close friend, and sometimes that can mean engaging in broader action. And personally, I'm thankful that I've had the privilege to take time for solitude, for friendships, and also for taking 
part in the bigger actions that are happening. Um, so today's episode, I'm speaking with Apollo Love, and Apollo is also a community organizer. In fact, he's taught empathy workshops around the country in 30 different states, if I'm not mistaken, as well as to police forces. Um, he is part of policeempathy.com. So please check out this website for an organization that is needed now more than ever before, uh, policeempathy.com. Um, I love this idea of teaching empathy to people. It's not a skill that gets covered in traditional school, but it is something we can learn about and practice and actually develop. Um, Apollo also helped organize the March for Our Lives protest in Oakland, California. Um, there were tens of thousands of people gathered peacefully. And it was really amazing to hear from Apollo how before the event began, they brought in meditation teachers, uh, nonviolent communication teachers and facilitators, and all the staff that were helping organize this event. They led them all in a group meditation and a visualization of how they wanted to see the day unfolding, uh, you know, in a peaceful way. And then it did unfold in a peaceful way. So I think this is a really positive story to hear and to remember during our time of unrest. Um, hopefully we will be moving towards greater peace and justice on a, you know, on a countrywide level. Apollo also gave a TED talk on stopping school violence. I will link to that in our show notes. He's also a poet and a rapper. And I'm gonna play for y'all a clip of one of his songs here in a moment. Um, another thing to note about Apollo is his work creating community events. Uh, he created uh, ongoing events like cuddle and dance gatherings, um, as well as doing workshops. And all of his work has been put on hold during the coronavirus. So he is currently living up in the mountains of Colorado and taking his own time for solitude, though the recent current events may be threatening that attempt at solitude on his part um, because he wants to be involved with what's going on. Here is his remix of the song Imagine. Imagine if we all had a vision of unity Who would be truly free, you and me, community Imagine if this pain that I'm feeling inside went away Unconditional love is something you felt every day Imagine if we didn't hate us Imagine if we didn't believe these papers are the things that are gonna save us Imagine if money didn't control all of our lives Imagine if all these politicians opened their eyes And realized that boundaries are things that are invisible Things we made up but humanity's indivisible United we stand, divided we fall Fighting for land that doesn't even belong To anyone, it's everyone's, it's time we evolve Some things are only solved by looking inside our hearts Imagine our beliefs were man-made While some use it just to separate and spread the hate on the landscape Imagine if we didn't kill each other over God And realize that all of us are made out of stars I'm saying Without further ado, I bring you Apollo Love. Me. 
I'm here today with Apollo Love. Apollo, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And um, I know you from different events around this area, around Boulder and Denver. Um, how would you kind of talk about yourself and what you've been up to? Well, um, I moved to Colorado a couple of years ago without knowing anybody. Um, <laughs> and it's been an amazing ride ever since I got here. Um, kind of a funny story that a lot of people don't know is um, when I got picked to host a rise festival, I just got to Colorado like two days before the rise festival even happened. And I found mm -hmm. out I was chosen as the host, like as I was driving to Colorado. So I kind of took it as a really nice welcoming into the state. <laughs> and that one weekend mm -hmm. turned into so many other things. Um, it was a pretty life-changing weekend for me overall. I even met the, the partner that I'm with right now. I met that weekend, a lot of the friends and everything that I, a lot of the connections came from Arise. So, um, yeah, ever since that, I've just been as involved as I can get in Colorado events and the yeah. community. Yeah, that's great. And Arise is like a music, also yoga festival, right? They have a lot of yoga workshops and yeah, they got a bunch of things. It was it was awesome. I'm a little sad it's not happening this year. And are you talking about the Arise that just happened last summer? Because I remember. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. Two, two, two years, years ago. Two years ago. Okay. Or wait a minute. Sorry. <laughs> I moved here two years ago um, for a short while, then left. And then on my way, like when I, it was official, I wasn't sure if I was going to stay in Colorado. I kind of was like checking it out. When I officially moved here, it was, yeah, the last arise. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember I was there too and um, did a meditation uh, workshop and uh, yeah, I saw you up on stage and I was like, oh yeah, because I'd seen some of your Facebook posts and stuff. But yeah. it's interesting, you didn't know that you were going to be hosting until right before. <laughs> yeah, I was driving here like, okay, I really liked Colorado. I don't know if I'm going to call it my home, but then when I decided like I'm definitely moving to Colorado. Um, for that to happen immediately as I was moving to Boulder, like literally, I actually met the roommates that I ended up living with. I met for the first time at a rice festival, which is hilarious. So, um, yeah, I've been kind of going back and forth between Boulder and Denver and I just love it. I love the state. Mm. Yeah. It's a great state. And you were in LA before this? Uh, I was in Oakland and oh, okay. for four years, um, doing empathy workshops for high school students out there so um i yeah i love the bay area and i i don't really know what drew, drew me to colorado except some sort of inner calling is how i describe it cool yeah and i saw your um ted talk about school violence and i thought it was really a good message thank um, you and i could see you trying to speak to a wider audience not make it about the right to own a gun or not you know getting beyond some of that black and white issues yeah that that was really the challenge is um the the very last ted talk that i did was in florida and it was a part of the state that was very like pro-gun mm. um, so you know i even had people come up to me afterwards like one woman was like you know when you first started your talk i was kind of like oh god like another gun reform like active, you know like she put mm. me in that box and then I, uh, cause I actually personally don't mind the second amendment. Um, 
I have my personal views around, you know, empathy training and emotional intelligence training and uh, mm. gun reform and all that. But I felt like the bigger point was being missed. And then as the talk went on, um, she she started to like open her mind to, you know, that middle ground perspective. And I'm starting to realize how important all of us finding that middle ground is because I don't know, these last few years have been very extreme. Like I've never seen so much polarization in my entire life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's such an important thing to be able to speak to people, find ways to communicate that, that really engage the whole person. And part of my background is with integral theory and this idea that everyone has their own perspective and there's some truth in their perspective. And what, what I see happening so often um, is we have these issues that are so polarized. And if you, it's like people are just reacting to certain phrases like gun rights or abortion or, you know, whatever the issue is. Um, so finding ways to appreciate where they're at and engage them so that they can actually think about it in a new way rather than just having their old already like pre-programmed responses um, come online and also appreciate like you could have the right to own a gun and we could have lots of reform around what that can mean, you know, like basic, I mean, personally, like basic security checks, basic background checks, basic like common sense gun laws kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Try to move the conversation forward, but I don't really want to get down that route too much. I mean, like, but this idea of empathy training is more why I wanted to talk to you that we can actually learn skills of how to empathize. Empathetic, empathetically relate to one another, feel one another, appreciate one another. And even if you disagree with someone, understand, try to understand their perspective, where they're coming from, maybe even why they think what they think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that ideally, that's the goal. I noticed that there is this whole concept that I talk about with like um, gardening, right? Like when you take a seed and you plant it in the wrong environment and it doesn't grow. It's not mm. the seed's fault. Um, you don't blame the seed. You, you change the environment. You don't change the seed. It's like that seed isn't meant to grow in that environment. So I think context is really important. So, you know, is there, when people say there's like a time and place for everything, I believe in that. Like, you know, in our community, when we talk about, you know, for example, I, I used to put on events up until this whole coronavirus thing happened. Mm. And I... I actually don't do anything at the events as far as the magic that's created. All I do is create the, con the container, right? Like I create the context of the container. And then when people show up to a container, they seem to sync up, right? Like they're, they're there with a similar intention. So if you're saying two opposing sides, if the container is we're going to argue and yell at each other on social media, which is fine, which is like, like I, I actually don't mind it. I, I think having empathy for people's anger is important too, or having empathy mm -hmm. for people's expression. Like this whole thing about shaming um, expressions of anger or fear, or like I think all of it needs to be transparent and we need to look at it versus a container of, okay, um, me and you are going to have a clearing, right? And we have a mediator that's going to sit with us now that container, we're showing up with the intention of hearing each other out. We're showing up with that, right? So, so we're showing up already open. So I think um, context really matters when it comes to 
empathy. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, I've done some um, different like group facilitation trainings and this idea of setting context, like why are we here and what are we doing and kind of having this broader purpose that we agree on, kind of setting the stage. Um, and if that context that is set, if that point is to, to actually feel one another, to get to know one another on a deeper level, rather than to prove a point or like win a debate or something, like that's a very different context. Right. And I think they're both important. I mean, um, I used to be of the mindset that we all can find peaceful ways of um, reaching agreements and all that. And then the longer that I've done this work, the more that I'm realizing that that's not all. If everybody agrees, you're living in a dictatorship. Mm. Um, you know, you, you know where <laughs> in the world people agree, where everybody agrees places like North Korea, right? You're not allowed to have debate. <laughs> you, right. you have to all agree with what the government's telling you. So to me, it's like a sign of freedom is that we have different perspectives where empathy comes in is like, for example, when I did my workshops, um, I went to places, I mean, I, I've been to 49 States in America, Alaska is the only one I, place I haven't been to yet. And I would go to places where I would have to drive hours into the woods to get to the school that I was leading my workshop in. And it was like, for example, the entire town is completely white and they're all like hunters and fishers. And when I look around, I mean, when I look at these teenagers and, you know, they're wearing their MAGA hats and, you know, it's hard for me to go into a, a place where I disagree with everybody, but I'm there to teach about empathy. So how do I find this balance between my personal, you know, like, for example, like on social media, I can personally vent, but when you're a space holder, it's, you have to kind of, or if you're in a position of power, you know, like a police officer or a CEO or a po politician, when you're in a position of power, you have to learn how to kind of separate the two and, and be able to hold space and all that. So, but when I went to that town, I looked around and I go, wow, if I was born and raised in this town, I would be exactly like these people. If my only, uh, under, if my only experience of a person of color is what I see on television and um, I don't have any context about like the totality of it, um, then it makes sense that these teenagers that grew up in this small town in the middle of nowhere grow up to become the adults that, you know, whoever they end up growing up to become that maybe I as an adult disagree, but that's the I, I, interesting thing is when you take two opposing sides, if you switch their lives, they would think like the person that they disagree with. Mm. The reason that that person thinks that way is because they had a certain life and certain influences that made them become those kind of adults. You know, so like I was born in Jerusalem in Israel and I always think like, wow, if my parents didn't bring me to the States, like I grew up in Jersey and New York where I was exposed to a lot of different cultures. It's like a melting pot. But if I didn't grow up here, there's no way I would be who I am today. I would be a completely different person based on a choice that I didn't even make, based on a choice that my parents made for me as a child and based on the influences I had growing up that once again, I didn't even have a stay in. So in a, in, a, in a way, like we're all products of our environment and conditioning. Um, I'm not saying like genetics and all that has no role or free will and all that and personal, all that has zero role. But I'm saying that I think our environment 
influences, molds, and impacts us more than we realize. Mm. Absolutely. So as an adult, you know, one of the most important things you can do is control your environment. Choose your environment. Choose your influence. Um, but that's amazing that you taught these workshops in 49 states. I didn't realize that. Is that right? You went oh, I, I, I've, I've been to 49 states. I've probably taught in maybe like half of them, 30 of them maybe. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's amazing though. What, just for our listeners, what, was your, what is your workshop called or what was it called? Um, it was for an organization called Challenge Day. Um, mm. it, it, it's existed for a few decades and um, it was basically, we would take a hundred students uh, from seventh through 12th grade and we would be in the gym for about six hours and it's a full on social emotional learning workshop, kind of like an anti-bullying, suicide prevention, um, social awareness workshop. So mm. was doing it with the young people and now um, I've been shifting to working with adults and um, when I was out there, I did a workshop at San Quentin State Prison with about a hundred people that were in there for murder or, you know, these hor horrific crimes, uh, situations that they ended up in. Um, and that was a real eye opener to see how I always have this quote that I say that we're, we are so much more than our weakest moments. And I try to mm -hmm. remember that. So I don't want people to hold me. You know, when you're a public figure, you sometimes either get pedestaled or demonized. We do that to anyone who's, you know, that we don't understand or that isn't a public thing or politicians, celebrities, workshop facilitators, leaders, teachers, anybody in that role. Um, people will will project things onto them. So like, I don't want to be mm. pedestaled. I don't want to, you know, I, I think that that's what happens a lot when we, we get surprised when like we see our heroes fall and it's mm. just like, yeah, cause they're human beings like all of us are. <laughs> so, um, you know, the more that you travel, the more that you learn about people, you know, even people that have done horrific things. Like I told you, like the, the inner, I know you're familiar with the interview I did with Charles Manson and it's like, Oh, you know, yeah. people, it's like if you can, uh, if you can understand and have empathy for someone like Charles Manson and a hundred murderers at San Quentin State Prison, then it's like I feel like that that's, um, you know, bickering over little things or not willing to forgive people over little things or demonizing them over you know one weak moment that they had. It's just it's not the totality of who people are. And I always say that anybody who, you know, that whole quote, like hurt people, hurt people. But I also think that um, anytime a crime is committed, uh, a, like the criminal is usually the first victim of that crime. In a way, when you think about like the cause and effect of what makes people become who they are. So, yeah, the more that I travel, the more that I interact with different kinds of people, the more uh, empathy that I can hold. I always say there's nobody I'm, I'm willing there's nobody that I'm not willing to forgive and nobody that I'm not willing to apologize to with, with time and context. <laughs> right. I actually want to uh, circle back to Charles Manson in a little bit. Um, but yeah, he's a good example of someone who's been so vilified that if we can find some humanity, there, some compassion without excusing bad behavior. I think, I mean, it's an interesting, this is one of the issues that actually divides uh, more conservative people from more liberal people just based on, on psychological 
studies really of openness where like people on the more conservative end of the personality spectrum are more kind of crime and punishment oriented and people who are more just to generalize more on the liberal end are more forgiving. They want to see prison more as like a rehabilitation. And so, um, I think it's important to honor both perspectives, but basically I agree with you. I think we as a society need a lot more of the empathy. We need a lot more of the sympathy. We need a lot more of the understanding. And if we could like, if, if someone is saying something and then they end up not being perfect and like having some scandal or something, that doesn't mean that their message was necessarily wrong. It means that their behavior wasn't perfect. Like you just said, they're human. So I think being able to like have that perspective feels really important today because what happens is like when someone's, you know, a politician or a leader or whatever, and they mess up, then it's like that gets used to discredit everything they stand for, everything they've done. And I think that that just doesn't, that's not logical. That's not logical to me. Let me, let me ask you like a philosophical question, if that's cool. Let me flip the interview for a sec. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if, you, if, if you had to choose, this is a total philosophical like dilemma. If you had to choose between, let's say you're a soul and you get to choose two different lives. One life, um, you are not going to really hurt anybody. You're going to kind of be neutral, you know, um, you know you're, but you're also not going to, really leave a big impact you're not gonna inspire anybody you're just gonna live kind of like your own little life like kind of a neutral life nothing too no too highs too lows right mm. so you're you're not really contributing much to the world or to society right but you, you just live a neutral life on the other side let's say you're gonna inspire millions of people donate like millions of dollars save like have actual evidence that you've saved people's lives however you are going to do one horrific thing that destroys somebody let's say like you're going to murder somebody but you're also going to save a thousand lives versus mm. you're not going to murder somebody but you're not going to save any lives if you do pro positive versus negative as far as contribution to humanity which life do you choose that's a fascinating question i love that <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, destroying someone else's life is, um, that's pretty extreme. And yeah, my gut, my gut reaction is to go with the, the bigger life that makes an impact that affects people. Um, and, right, so uh, we see this with yeah. celebrities a lot where I know, you know, that I look at some celebrities where they've done so much good for the world. Um, mm. and then if, you know, they had a weak moment and they messed up or whatever, and then they're forever demonized for, for the rest of their lives. Um, and that's all that they're remembered by. Um, but then I'm like, yeah, it, it's an interesting dilemma. It's an interesting dilemma. I don't know what the right answer is. Um, but I know that's not saving a thousand lives, maybe the equivalent of the, you know, those lives, like saving those lives are worth something is what I'm trying to say. Uh, now the karma of what you do with the negative aspect is yours right like that stuff mm. that you're gonna have to deal with one way or the other but it's this overall philosophical thing of like yeah like how how quickly somebody can do um i'm, I'm reading this book right now or this audio listening to this audio book called don't bite the hook highly recommend it highly mm. recommend it especially for don't people that hook. are impulsive don't bite the hook um if you have anger issues or you're impulsive and, and you give into your emotions a lot, it's a really, really good book. And nice. it kind of talks about how 
somebody can do a lot of good in the world, but if they hurt you one time, that you will be forever demonized in their eyes. That like mm. all the good that you did for them will be forgotten because of that one pain that you caused them or because you gave into your anger. And it talks about like the destructive force of anger, which I can vouch for. Um, yeah. It's something I struggle with sometimes. Um, but how that one moment of anger can wipe out all of the good that you do in the world. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's actually an ancient uh, Buddhist teaching. There's this Buddhist master, Shantideva, who said a single moment of anger can, exactly what you just said, destroy uh, 3,000 years of good karma or something like that. And um, people have been listening to this podcast, like one of the, I've had several podcasts about scandals in spiritual communities, yeah. uh, specifically Buddhist ones. And I think what you just said is so relevant to that. We're like, there's a teacher who's been inspiring people to make positive changes and live better lives and be more compassionate. And then there's some scandal often around sexuality. And then it can, the whole thing can flip from something good to something right. bad so quickly where all of a sudden this was a cult. I was being controlled. I gave up my free will. And I think it's really, I think it really takes some inner work and maturity to like harvest the gold, harvest the good and not totally demonize the thing. Because when you demonize the group and the leader 100%, you're kind of cutting off a part of yourself, I think. Because the people who are most hurt by this are the people who are in these groups. And then they feel so hurt because they feel like they've wasted years of their life. And I don't think, it, I don't think we need to feel that way. I don't know. I'm trying to find a way to talk about that and think about that that makes sense. But um, for sure, we're all human and we all fuck up. And to not excuse any bad behavior at all, um, yeah, it's a tricky, such a tricky subject. I I think it's more about normalizing instead of excusing. When we normalize, when we, when we realize that people are people and no matter – I've been involved in a lot of different communities and what I've noticed is it's pretty similar. Like the percentage of people that are doing bad stuff versus good stuff or the percentage of people that abuse their power – it, you can put on a different costume. You could, you know, if we're talking about like the new age community, right? Yeah. It's like, for me, it's even, sometimes it's even harder to see some of the darkness that people carry because we spiritually bypass or we, we don't accept emotions like anger or, or, you know, and so it doesn't matter if it's new age, if it's uh, people, politicians, if it's Buddhism, if it's the police right. force, it's like, there's always a, a majority of people actually are doing good work. And then there is, right. you know, the ones that are doing the most extreme stuff, the ones that are the loudest are the ones that get the most attention. We see this in politics, especially, right? Like right. the extreme left and the extreme right are taking up most of the spotlight when they actually make up a minority of the population. So we see, yeah, yeah. it's just human psychology. That's a great point. And I mean, we haven't gotten into this, but like all these protests going on, I think the vast majority of people are showing up peacefully. They're showing up with good intentions. And then there's a minority who are smashing windows, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah. And yeah I'm, sure, I'm sure if you counted how many people showed up to protest and, and like, let's say there was like God's camera and you could actually mathematically count how many people showed up to protest and how many of them <laughs> threw a bottle. It, like it would probably be like, one percent maybe like who knows right, right? it's like right but it's definitely a minority hundred percent 
Well, I think we, you know, human beings are addicted to drama. We're, the news media plays into things that are exciting. You know, if everyone, if there's a thousand people walking peacefully down the street and there's one person who rips all their clothes off and like lights a building on fire, like we're going to look at that, you know, <laughs> that's right. partly like an entertainment thing. And then the other thing I was thinking about just to, because I want to say this is like your question was a really good one about the two lives. But I, I just, part of what that brought up for me is like, I think we can, someone could be leading a very, I don't know what the right word is, simple life where they're not getting a lot of attention or fame or money or whatever. And that could be a really good, fulfilling, amazing existence. And I just feel like our culture is so worshiping of fame and money that it, that we devalue, you know, other ways of being sometimes. Yeah. It, I think, I mean, my, see that this is where we go more into philosophy. Like I'll tell you my personal belief. Um, which could be total BS. <laughs> but my, my personal belief is that every soul um, chooses in some way. Um, so like if a soul chooses to have a peaceful life where they're not really making an, a positive impact or contributing to the collective, but they're just finding their inner peace, then maybe the last lifetime was the total opposite and they need a mm. break. And they need to do their inner work. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think sometimes like some lives are more to be internal and I, I, and this feels so real to me right now because I'm in this dilemma as we speak where I, I'm in the middle of turning off my social media, this riot happens. I write a post and it has over 3000 shares now. So now I'm like, okay, you know, this post is helping people. It's inspiring people. It's educating people. It's obviously resonating now, mm. if I turn off my social media, the post is going to disappear. And it, so now I'm like, okay, mm. I'm going to wait for it to kind of slow down before I turn it off because it's serving the collective, but it's at the cost of my own. It's distracting me from the inner work that I need to do. So I'm in this, mm. you know, right now, like I said, I'm in a, in a mountain in the middle of nature on, you know, away from people. And my goal was to disconnect from all the fighting and the activism and all the stuff that I'm normally involved with and do my inner work because a lot of times that social political activism can be a distraction from ourselves it's easier to we see this a lot with people that caretake for others or they're always fighting for something outside of themselves it's like fight for your own self-growth fight for your own inner peace as well so it's mm. about finding the balance and also being in alignment with what you came to this earth in this lifetime to be you know it's different for each person yeah. there's no right or wrong Absolutely. I just, I love uh, getting to witness some of the process that you're in. And uh, I remember one of the impetuses for me to reach out to you as you posted, you're like, I'm going to be deleting or signing off of Facebook for a while, social media for a while. And then a few days later, the whole world goes on fire and everything explodes. And I can, I mean, it's just of all the times to try to get off and away from the news, this has got to be the most challenging time. I mean, I'm going to sleep at night reading the news. I'm waking up in the morning, looking at the news. I'm talking to people. I'm going down to the protests later tonight. So I totally appreciate where you're at and you have been very active and now you're wanting to maybe do more internal work. And I'm a little bit in the opposite space where I've been in this like meditative, more Buddhist, more therapeutic world and like wanting to understand how I can, what I can contribute to the collective um, in a positive way. But yeah, that's just, I mean, we're so, it's so part of the world we're in is it's so hard to stop. It's so hard to turn it off. It's so hard to step away. It's so fast paced. Things change so fast. And 
I mean, if you turn it off for a month or for a year, like the world would go on, you know, but it doesn't feel like that in our system. It feels like, ah, I'm going to miss out. I'm going to miss my life. (laughs) I'm going to tell you a super like humbling experience that I had is when I did, uh, when I did this reality show, the, the glass house thing on ABC, you know, we were cut off from the outside world for months. Oh, wow. And like, I didn't know who won the championship. I didn't know any big news. I didn't know anything. Um, and I remember when I got out, I was like, oh my God, what did I miss? Like, what are all the things like light? And then I was just like, oh, like the world just moves on without you. Like, like nobody cares. <laughs> like, like, I, like it, it just, things move on, you know? Um, so that was a pretty like interesting experience. I heard the story of um, that they were filming Big Brother in the, I think Germany or UK or something. I forgot what country is somewhere in Europe. And uh, none of the, none of the cast knew that the coronavirus like lockdown global thing was happening. They're just sitting there, they're hanging out, they're having a great time while the whole world is like changing. So when they got out, it was like a, sorry. Um, (laughs) It was like a big thing that they were like, whoa, like, you know, the world is way different than they went in. And I'm sure the same (laughs) happens for, you know, there are, there are islands that, Mm you know, that people have never, it's just like a tribe lives there or there are people that just live in the woods without technology. And then when they emerge, they learn that the world's changed so much, but it's just fascinating. Yeah. It's so fascinating. I think the world is changing so much and and in some some ways it's not, you know, in some ways we have the same old human dramas playing out, but yeah. um, Yeah. Well, it's definitely true with people who go on meditation retreats too. You know, you kind of cut off and then you emerge again. And um, I've had some fascinating conversations with people. And I shared about this on the podcast in the past a bit, like who has, they've gone on like a three-year retreat, like a very serious meditation retreat. And they're pretty much cut off from the outside world. And then they came out and like the iPhone has been invented and they feel totally kind of like they've got to catch up now. And then this experience of like having done this really, challenging difficult inner work but then encountering people who might not appreciate that you know like it's it's hard to translate that sometimes i think for people and um yeah yeah it's a a battle it's a battle sometimes Uh, like i i'm very opinionated i'm very outspoken it often Mm -hmm. gets me in trouble i sometimes say things i regret (laughs) but like you know sometimes i'm like sometimes i'm like what is this all for like maybe, like like I said, like maybe I'm distracting myself and I just need to be quiet and listen to my inner work. But then like when I do that long enough, I then get to the point of feeling like I'm, I'm pr- like kind of giving into my privilege of like, oh, hmm. I get to do this, but this isn't the reality for billions of people. Like billions right. of people are in poverty and, I have, you know, they don't have money and food and water and all this stuff. And I need to do something, right? Like I need to use my voice. I need to speak out. I need to fight against oppression. I need to like, you know, because for me, I'm like this peace that I'm seeking in solitude exists in outside of this life right like mm. i came from the oneness i came from the peace i like i chose mm. i signed up for this roller coaster ride i chose to be in this human body that i know is going to be forgotten and you know none of this really matters in the bigger picture but in this picture right now in this moment it does matter so for me like honoring humanity is a spiritual path yeah, you know to me definitely. those like the people that are protesting are they're not any more or less spiritual than the buddhist monk that's meditating their soul mm. chose to be 
uh, to fight for something in this lifetime. And that other soul chose to do inner work in this lifetime. All of it is, I don't even see this thing of like, this is sacred doesn't even always resonate with me because I'm like, by saying one thing is sacred, you're saying that something else isn't. Right. And it's like yeah, exactly. everything is sacred. Every person, every journey, every expression of the oneness is still part of the oneness, you know? Yeah. No, I love that. I, I agree. I mean, I think being able to honor both, being able to take time for solitude and time for engagement, and they're both so valuable. And they don't need to be seen as contradictory, like at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. <sighs> I mean, you know, Gandhi and Martin Luther King were political activists, even though they're quoted more as like spiritual activists, right? Like, especially like with Gandhi and like that connection is like, it's like, no, he was a political activist too. You know, people forget that. You know, actually, I forgot the quote. I don't want to misquote it, but I'm sure if you look it up, there's some quote around him saying that, I don't know if if you, I'm, I'm going to sound foolish, but whatever. Um, <laughs> this quote around like politics is a spiritual act. I forgot who said it, but I think it was Gandhi or MLK. Um, but that I found that really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm a part of this um, meditation group that's uh, meeting tonight. And I messaged everyone this morning. I was like, let's go down to Denver. Let's go down to the Capitol. Let's go down to where the protests are happening and do our meditation there and walk around and be a force for peace. And I'm excited. I think that's going to happen. So that, that'll be one small thing of where normally we're kind of separating ourselves from the world, like actually going into the chaos a little bit. So I have a little bit of a different perspective than what I hear a lot of people saying about these protests. I am a big, I'm in favor of them. I think they're a good thing. And I think the some amount of the threat of violence is actually a force for positive change right now. And if these protests were 100% peaceful, no one would be, not no one, but we wouldn't be talking about it. People wouldn't be paying attention. So I don't think anyone should, I don't want anyone to get hurt. I'm not saying that, but if when I study how things have changed in societies, like the civil rights movement, like India with Gandhi, there was Gandhi and Martin Luther King who were representing a very peaceful beautiful, nonviolent way for change to happen. And then there were people on the other side who were, who were saying, if this peaceful way doesn't work, there is going to be violence. There is going to be an uprising. And in the case of Gandhi, the English government worked with him for the most part and was able to have a more peaceful transition for the most part. Um, but if there, had, if there had been no threat of the negative alternative, I don't think that would have happened. So that's, that's part of what I remember from when I studied that more. Huh. That's a that's a really good perspective. I it's it's interesting. Like just right before this interview, I got into um, kind of this uh, a debate on Facebook with someone who is uh, so I'm part Armenian, and you know we went through the Armenian genocide in the early 1900s, and oh, man. this Armenian guy was posting about oh they shouldn't do this. Like look, like Armenians have been marching for a hundred years without any violence, and I go first of all, you can't compare the two. Um, if 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 you were, if me, if you were in Turkey and the Turkish police officers were constantly killing your people, constantly, and you went through hundreds of years of oppression, and you're peacefully protesting and marching, and it's not working, eventually you snap. And to be honest, I'm surprised it hasn't happened earlier than this. Like when people, oh, like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like to me, it's saint-like. It's saint-like to go through what um, people of color have gone through. 
um, yep. specifically the black community, and for <laughs> it to have been as peaceful. And the thing is, is that my favorite meme going around right now is like showing all the other ways that black people have been protesting and how every single time it's been criticized. Like you can't yeah. take a knee, you can't wear a t-shirt at a, at a sports game, you can't, you know, like give a speech at a, you know, at an award ceremony, like no matter what, um, what, whatever strategy is tried, it's constantly criticized. So for yeah. me, um, you know, burning, like I, I, when people are more outraged at a physical object being destroyed like a building than a human life, like somebody's brother, somebody's father, somebody's son, like mm. there is something morally wrong with that, especially when billion dollar insurance companies are going to cover it. Like, like why are people <laughs> so passionate about a billion dollar insurance company losing 0.1% of their budget more than they are that a innocent human being lost their life. To me, yeah. that's the outrage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I think to me that speaks to really deep dynamics about our society. Like, I mean, for me, this individualism and this property ownership and this and capitalism, like we, it's almost like our, I would say it is our collective religion. We hold private property so sacred. So when that gets destroyed, we're so outraged. And it's, I mean, it's just, I think it's terrible that people would value that over a life. Um, but that seems to be what some people's reaction is. Oh no, they're destroying a building. What, what, why, why are they destroying a building? They have really good reasons. Like something has to change. And people in power need to know that here's the thing. If you just lay over, if you just like lay down and just let other people like this is very tribal right like if you just let them take over if you let them get away with stuff then it gives them permission to keep doing what they're doing if they know that the people are going to fight back that the people mm. are that it's going to cost you so much especially because they have such an attachment to money and materialism if they mm. know that you're, you're you're basically hitting them where it hurts and if they know that it's going to cause all this, then they're going to be a lot less likely to do it. And they're going to be more likely to look at alternative ways. So yes, peace is the path for sure. But there is a concept of spiritual warrior. I think a lot of times when we idolize our ancestors, it's like, first of all, we don't know what they went through. Um, we don't know what their lives were actually like and the level of balance between violence and peace. But I bet you it was a lot more tribal and survival based when you come across a new tribe or the wars that happened in the past um but there had to be you know there had to be a balance where like when you look at the country we're in right now where you know indigenous people had so much wisdom and so much peace and they were met with violence and it's unfortunate what happened you know it's unfortunate what white people came and did to these lands and to this country um and so when they yeah. say like learning from the past, it's like, we all, we have to learn where did peace work and where did violence work? Because there are situations where each one actually was the reason that we, they, they both can lead to peace is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> like, yeah, there, there is yeah. a time for, but, but one is, one is aggressive and attacking and the other one is defending and fighting for justice. Right, like one's fighting for oppression, the other one is fighting against oppression. Right. Yeah, it's tricky, tricky territory. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, you know, I just, I mean, the protests now have spread internationally, which I think is just amazing. And again, the vast majority have been peaceful. So. And we don't even know who the agitators are. Have you heard of the theories of a lot of the agitators? Are like I have, under- and I, th- I think there's truth to them. I think the far right groups have gone in and started stuff. I think Antifa started stuff. I think, like I've been in protests and I've seen the 10,000 people, like I was in San Francisco before the Iraq war started and participated in a protest. Thousands of people taking up the street, thousands of people being completely legal and peaceful and then there was a small group that at the end started causing trouble and had the black masks on. And, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's chaos. I saw, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I saw a photo of a man with a hammer and a gas mask, you know, who it said instigated the looting in Minneapolis. And then another photo of that same man in a police uniform saying that he was a Minneapolis police officer. Now, is so that true I, or is that an internet thing? I don't know, but yeah, yeah. I've seen it. <laughs> I, think that, I, I think that part was, I think that they actually identified who the other person was and it, it, it is somebody who's different with a different name. But with that said, okay. um, I do think that that guy with the mask was highly suspicious and highly suspect how he just mm. showed up, ignored the other protesters, hit the glass and then started walking away and threatened, threatened the other protesters for following him. Um, I was part of uh, organizing uh, the Occupy March in Phoenix back when I was way more extreme than I am now. My views have changed around all that, but I was, Mm. I was heavy in it. And I also organized the March for Our Lives event in Oakland. And um, I saw how like, at least in the, the Occupy thing in Phoenix, there were definitely some people that were protesters that were suspicious to a lot of us as Mm. being undercover police officers or um, people that were instigating stuff that we weren't agreeing with that, but they, they're kind of, the way that you could tell is when they're doing their own thing that is completely contrary to them, to like, they don't, they're not in unison with the movement. They're disrespect. Like they're just kind of doing it and disappearing. I'm like, that's a little suspicious. Like, you know? (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because this was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about before all these protests started was the explosion in conspiracy thinking. Um, And part of my angle on that, and I've been really thinking about this a lot critically, is like, there's a reason why people believe in some of these conspiracy thinking, because sometimes there's there's elements of truth in them sometimes. And historically, we can prove that. COINTELPRO was a FBI program that sent FBI agents into the civil rights movement, into student activist movements in the 60s, and did exactly what you're describing. They would encourage people to set off a bomb. They would encourage people to do something illegal and then blame the, you know, then it gives the movement a bad name. And I had Daniel Thorson on the podcast and he lived in the Occupy Wall Street encampment for like months. And he saw people coming into the encampment and trying to kind of talk to people and get people together to do some kind of something illegal. And they would, sometimes they would be able to tell like, oh, this is an outside person who's trying to infiltrate. And so that, that does happen. That's not a crazy conspiracy thinking. But the, the problem, of course, is some of these conspiracy thinking ideas are way, you know, too much and probably are completely removed from reality. So it's just, yeah. we live in a confusing time. We live in confusing time. It's a, it's a rabbit hole. Um, see, there's this thing where it's like, just because people tie threads to a different pers- to different points, they tie threads and they don't necess- they're not necessarily connected to one another. So like, for example, mm-hmm. just because this is true, doesn't mean that this is true. Or just because 
this, you know, this happened, does it mean like there's a difference between causation and correlation? And I think that when we distract ourselves with things that are, there are things that are theory and then there are things that are more like, like what we're talking about right now is actually more of a tactic than a theory, right? It's more of like psychological mm. warfare. It's uh, there's war strategies there, is, but, but it feels like it's of this earth. It feels like things that make logical sense that, that the opposing side wants to like, you know, we uh, paint the other side in a bad light. We do that mm. as humans in lots of situations. So why wouldn't we do it? when it comes to politics and social activism and all that, like, of course, so to me that there is logical and illogical theories. And I think um, when people present theories that are far out there, it's fine. It's fine to explore it, but the level of dogmatic, like fundamentalist, this Mm. is the truth 100% and you're an idiot for not believing it. um, That approach, it's just like, you spent so much time talking about like 5G causing coronavirus and no time talking about black people getting murdered by cops. Like, mm. like there are things that are tangible that needs our focus and energy. Um, but if you're 100% convinced that your theory is true, then in your mind, you think that you are fighting for something that it's not a theory, it's a fact in your mind. But for me, like, I just prefer to put my focus on things that I know I can change, that I can contribute to, that I could do something about. If there is some sort of secret society of people that are running I, the world and all this stuff, like <laughs> I, serenity prayer is my favorite words ever written in English language. Uh, not from like mm-hmm. a religious perspective. I just think that philosophically, it's the greatest words ever written to grant me the serenity Mm. to accept the things that I can't change, the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference that applies in so many areas of society and life. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Yeah, it's a great perspective. And I think sometimes having a more spiritual perspective can help you to, can help me to kind of let go. Like maybe, you know, some, George Soros is an evil guy. Yeah, what can I do about it? I can do the best that I can do. I don't believe that he is that evil, personally. Yeah. But like, I just you know, if it's disrupting someone's sleep, if that's all they can talk about, I mean, there's clearly the coronavirus and Trump. There's a lot of factors, but we're in a time where people are. Um, there's no longer a consensus reality. There's no longer agreed upon reality the way that there used to be. <laughs> yeah. And none of it's going to matter. That, that, that's the thing that cracks me up the most is t- kind of tying it in back to what we were talking about earlier is at the end of the day, there is this humbling uh, realization that no matter what we do, no matter what we do, if you save the environment, if you save politics, if you all of it, there will eventually be a point. Maybe we buy ourselves another hundred years, another thousand years, right? Let's just say we take steps right now. Not to say it's not important, right? Don't get me wrong here. It is important to put focus on making the world a better place. But when you um, when it's used as a constant distraction from like never doing your own spiritual work, um, at the end of the day, this world is going to end. We know that it's science. Mm. It's a fact. Not only is this world going to end, there will be no evidence that planet Earth ever existed to begin with. So as the universe is expanding, <laughs> the, the, the space between planets 
and stars are getting further and further that no matter, you know, right there, there's eventually going to be a point where humans, the earth, the sun is going to explode, right? And things are going to go flying. And what is a thousand years to infinity? What is a thousand years to like billions and trillions of years of existence, right? It's nothing. It's a little tiny speck. But this whole realm, I believe, is created for us. I call it earth school. It's created for our souls to, to, to grow, for to experience, to have these experiences of either fighting to save the planet or learning about, you know, emotional intelligence and, you know, learning about uh, alchemy and things like that. Like, to me, it's like, it's, it's cool that we're in it, but let's not forget what we are. Like, more important than who you are is what you are. We're very caught up in who we are. Mm. Um, we're very caught up in identity. But I always say, like, I'm a soul before I'm a human. I'm a human before I'm a race. You know, mm. like my ego, like how I'm remembered, who I am, none of that really matters in the bigger picture. It's all a game of the ego. I don't care who I am. Who I am is a costume. But like what I am outside of this, I'm using who I am to expand what I am. Mm. That's why I chose to be this character in this lifetime. That's my personal belief. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. It's a big, bigger perspective to take. And, um... Yeah, we do get caught up in these identities for sure. You have to be able to let go of that. Yeah, we can honor them, but it's not what we are in, in the bigger <laughs> thing. Yeah. Well, to, to go to the kind of opposite end from the cosmic view back to the muck and guck, um, I said <laughs> I was going to come, I said I was going to circle back to Charles Manson. And what I was had in mind is there is some evidence. I don't know if I, this new book came out. The CIA and MK Ultra. it's this kind of stuff that if you start talking about, you could sound crazy. But we now know, you can look it up on Wikipedia and read about it, there was this MK Ultra program in the CIA that was trying to develop mind control techniques and doing all kinds of weird stuff. And um, so there's good circumstantial evidence that places Charles Manson, it's really creepy and it's, it's terrible, but like in San Francisco, in Haight Street, with the, the CIA agents were going in and actually distributing LSD to people and trying to brainwash them in negative ways. And um, it's the kind of thing that if someone had talked about this 10 years ago, they would sound like a raving lunatic, like the tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy guy. But this is an example of a government program that was kept really secret, that was really destructive and horrible, and it's really disturbing to learn about. And so I think we as a society need to reckon with our past in order, if we wanna understand why conspiracy thinking is taking over our politics, we need to look at the actual conspiracies and have some like truth and reconciliation around them because they're terrible. And there may or may not be a direct connection with Charles Manson, but there's, you know, the MK Ultra program has been admitted and that's something that we can learn about and it's disturbing. So. Yeah, yeah, that's, there's a balance, right? Um, what my yeah. hope is, what my hope is, is that, you know, this whole thing of, we can either like fight the old world or put that same energy into creating the new world. Mm. Um, right now, we're at a overlapping point in time where both things are happening. So, you know, sometimes like, like anarchy, for example, like people just want like, a lot of times people just want things to switch, like, okay, here we are. Um, or like a lot of these different structures. Um, I have a personal thing where I think there is a, there's a hybrid of all these systems that I think would work best, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, 
but in reality things don't just turn overnight they like the old world starts fading while the new world gets birth so mm. you kind of have to put a little bit of your effort into swinging your hammers at the berlin wall and use and put a little bit of effort into laying bricks down somewhere else uh to build bridges or to build homes right so it's like mm. you could do both uh right now we're at this transition point so um my ideal vision is the world starts becoming so conscious that the people in power like we influence from the bottom up like it, it just keeps because those people like if you're a 75 year old billionaire who's in a position of power and you've had the same level of thinking your entire life mm. i'm probably not going to change you realistically i i probably feel I kind of feel a little foolish for even putting energy into you. I'd rather be putting energy into the next generation. Yeah. That's the reason I started working with the youth. Um, right. So, yeah, we need to be aware of the past for sure and also start thinking about how we're going to teach the next generation a better way. Oh, yeah, it's a good point. Um, there's a philosopher, Ken Wilber, he said, progress precedes funeral by funeral. <laughs> But he was talking about that same thing you just said. He's not being morbid. He's you can't change some people's thinking. So, yeah. <laughs> My, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> um, to make it more personal, have you like lost friendships over some of the conspiracy thinking around coronavirus or Trump or how how do you navigate that if someone has a very different viewpoint than you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so. There is this interesting thing that's been happening um, during this whole thing. Um, mental health has been super important. And mm -hmm. I always tell people, like, I just did a, a workshop, an anger workshop a couple weeks ago for this, like, virtual event. And was just kind of giving people permission to um, forgive themselves and forgive others for the way that they're acting during this global collective trauma experience that we're having. Uh, I know for sure, like, I'm embarrassed at some of the way, feelings I've given into. Um, but I kind of reached a point where, like, you know, I lost all my businesses. Um, I was, there is this level of unknown in the situation. And I think everybody is trying to grasp onto control. And I think, I don't think people are afraid of pain as much as they're afraid of discomfort. That's the reason why people stay in painful situations or painful relationships is because there's a level of comfort to it. I think discomfort is actually humanity's greatest fear. Discomfort of the unknown, yeah. discomfort of not being in control. So for me, uh, yeah, I ended up losing, um, you know, I, I don't want to say not too many friend friends, more like acquaintances or online people where I go, Jesus, like I go on Facebook and I'm sitting there and I'm scrolling and it's just like riling me up. And I'm like, I don't even know these people. And every time that I, every hour that I spent debating people that I don't even know is an hour taken away from getting closer with the people that I actually love. Like it's, it's time. Everything is an investment of time and energy. We know this in entrepreneurial school of thought. So for me, it's like, if you need to like unfriend people, it's not saying like, no, don't, you know, don't talk with people that disagree with you. It's not saying, you know, to demonize people who disagree with you. I just think like right now, as we're going through all this, your mental health and emotional health should be your number one priority. You know, not debating with people online left and right. I do it. I get caught up in it. It's the reason I want to get off social media. 
I want to be clear, I am not above anything that I teach. I teach it because it's impacted my life. And sometimes I give in and sometimes I don't. And I know that when I make the proper investment of my time and energy, um, I end up in a more peaceful state within myself. So once again, mm. balancing when do you put up a fight with, and when do you choose your inner peace? Yeah. For me, it's also a question of when do I, when do I confront or challenge versus when do I just understand and listen? And I try to do both usually. I mean, if it's someone that I want to put the time and energy into, because um, I've had some people that I'm fairly close to and I've been surprised to discover more of their worldview. Like I never knew that you believed Hillary Clinton was involved with uh, kind of evil sex magic trafficking something. Like I didn't know that about you. And right. how can I understand this? And uh, I don't believe that myself, but I'm, I, I try, you know, it's like, where do you go with that? I, I mean... <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. And I've met, I've met a lot of these celebrities. I've hung out with a lot of these like rich and powerful people. Mm. I, I wish more people did. Um, because when you do, you kind of realize that, Oh, you're just a human being. <laughs> you're just in a different, <laughs> you're in a different position. You know, I've spent like mm. prolonged periods of times. So I'm not going to mention the name. There's one person who, who's a billionaire who's very mm. famous and I spent an entire week with them in this really deep inner work stuff. Um, and I didn't even know who they were until afterwards. And when I discovered who they yeah. were, I was like, holy crap, like that person mm -hmm. has like daddy issues and that person has unresolved childhood wounds just like I do. And like, you know, it's just like, oh, they're just people and they're just end up mm. in a different position. And it, once again, if you were in their position, you, you might act the same way that they act like, or maybe they just were never educated on this. It's just like, the, but you know, once again, rich, powerful. Uh, yeah, you know, we do no, that. Actually, that actually felt really good for me to hear, just on a personal level. I felt my system like relax a little bit, and I breathed a little bit deeper. And I think, I think that's such an important thing, and that you have that personal experience is valuable to share. Because I think, I mean, obviously, part of what's happening is there's this huge separation between the rich and powerful and the rest of us, at least as we perceive it. But the reality probably is, yeah, they still have issues. They still suffer. They still have regrets. They, you know, they <laughs> honestly, I think that's part of what the value of podcasting has done. When some of these guys go on a two hour, you know, Joe Rogan interview, like Elon Musk, you, you get to see the humanity a little bit behind the frontier or your projection, because it's such a partly just because of the length of time. Like if you talk with someone for two hours, you will, get to know them on a deeper level you know yeah like a, a fun can, thing yeah. you can do that people can do is like re reverse pattern trace uh behaviors so what i mean by that is right now like think about a person that you know you demonize that's like rich and powerful um and you know or an act that somebody from the other side has done and then like you know you write down the act and then you kind of like start zooming in until you get to the core of the behavior. So you go, okay, so that person did this act at the core of that behavior. What are they actually like committing like emotionally? Like what, what, what is, what are they guilty of actually doing? Not like mm -hmm. in a specific way, like, oh, that person did this. But I mean, the emotional core is like, oh, that person is, really wanting to feel control right now. That is why they did what they did. 
And then you take that emotion and you go, have I ever in my life done something that just because I was afraid and I wanted to feel control, right? Um, for example, um, let me think about how I want to say this. Hmm. Okay, so we're seeing it right now uh, with police officers, right? Where you see there's a group of people that have been demonized, right? Um, as a collective versus another group of people that are equally, not equally, that's not fair, but, but are also being demonized as a collective, hmm. um, right? Where I know police officers that do speak out against injustices, especially like when I lived in the Bay Area. I also know police officers that have abused their power but I also know people. I also know people that have abused their power. Right. I know social activists that have abused their power. So right. I worked at a nonprofit where the, the founders abused their power. So it's like I see it and I'm also like, okay, when, when you're judging an entire collective from individual, is it's an ism. And that ism exists across all boards. The difference is, is that some isms are more deadly some structures in like you know the way that black people are treated in this country has far more deadly repercussions and psychological repercussions than people stereotyping all cops are bad right mm. it's it's different it's different one has more power than the other one of you know so both things can be true and it's a spectrum of mistreatment but at the core level we might still be slightly guilty of demonizing an entire group based on the actions of a few on all sides. Yeah, it's a good point. And then the, you know, what the conversation needs to be is how do we change some of these structures, you know, the, the real societal structures that are leading to things like this, like George Floyd being murdered, you know, and it's not, it's not really about an individual. It's about the whole, I mean, the reason why people are protesting around the world is, you know, like just in that one example, like there's three, uh, there were two or three other police officers there. Like it just shouldn't have happened. I think that's part of the outrage. Like they're just, there should be a baseline understanding of, I mean, it's just an obvious, it's just so obvious. Like, no, that's wrong. So uh, even people on the right, like I haven't seen anyone defending that particular act because it's not defensible. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, solution oriented is I just started promoting um, if you go to policeempathy.com. Um, mm. To me, like empathy training for police officers should be a requirement. I actually looked up like what are some of the training mm. that police officers go through? There, there is an emotional intelligent training. There is an right. empathy training. There isn't social awareness training. Absolutely. Why isn't there? I mean, I've been I fighting for a thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've been fighting for students to get training, but I think like everybody needs it, but especially people that are in positions of life. Yeah, I was, um, a part, I'm a part of an organization called Be Mindful, and they've, we've been, I say we, we've been trying to bring mindfulness training to police officers for years now. And it's all these like roadblocks and red tape. And then I actually did a podcast with a first responder. He's not a police person, but he was, uh, and you know he's like if you call 911 he's like the guy who would answer the phone and i learned he's like part of this first responder community and then he didn't want me to publish it which was a real shame but like 
there is just a level of mistrust of media, of the perception of um, outsiders coming in. It's kind of this inside-outside dynamic. I don't have maybe as much experience as you do, but it's not, I, I just, part of the problem that I've seen really clearly is if someone's having a mental breakdown, if someone is a schizophrenic, a lot of, and a lot of homeless people have severe mental health issues, in our country, we call the police, and the police aren't trained at all. They have no zero training, zero training to deal with mental health issues. And so that's just, I mean, that's just, that's a small, that's a part of the dynamics, not the whole thing, but for sure they need more training. And we need other ways to respond that don't involve someone whose first instinct is to pull out a gun. Yeah. There's this thing, like, in order to change the government, we must become the government. So you can either try to make people that are in these positions of power more conscious. Or you can have conscious people end up in those positions of power, right? Those are two different <laughs> strategies. Those are two completely different strategies, right? So um, I'll say like, so the March for Our Lives event in Oakland, we had thousands of people show up, presidential candidates, celebrities, uh, oh. Steve Kerr was there, the Warriors coach. Mm. Um, at the end of it, the police, both the police and the activists said that it was the best organized political protest they've ever been to. Like we got complimented on it. And when people asked me like, what was the secret to that? Cause I'll tell you this, when I had meetings with the police, wow, they were, they did not want to be there. They did not, they, they just like were mean immediately. They were like, you know, they weren't initially on board, you know, cause you have to get permits and all this stuff. And then I was like, okay, I'm not going to work with the police at all. But then we weren't sure if we were going to march and then they had to shut down streets and all this stuff. Like I was trying to do it the safe way, the right way to, but not, you know, get all sides kind of on board. But the secret to the whole event being successful, we didn't have a single violent act or anything. And this was Oakland, right? Like wow. Oakland, yeah. Oakland knows how to protest um, <laughs> was because we, before the event started, um, not only did we have an awesome staff, but we, we brought in meditation teachers. We brought in nonviolent oh, communication so cool. space holders. And you could see photos of it, of all of the volunteers going through like an hour Tai Chi meditation mindfulness visualization of the event before the event even started and the event went, was flawless like it, it went mm. great and by the end of it those same police officers that were so mean to me just by giving them some of the empathy tools and community you know being the change like showing them like you could be mean to me but i'm going to communicate with you like this they they i saw them turn i saw them have a 180 or the end of it, they're like, you know what? Like, you had, this was actually a really good thing for for the city, and hearing that coming from, so it's like they just haven't had the opportunity. They haven't had the opportunity. Nobody has ever taught them about emotional intelligence or empathy training. So right. I, I think it, it needs to be required, and we need to. You're not going to convince all the police departments to do empathy training. So our current strategy is to try to. Um, get to the politicians um, or to have people who believe in this to, to run for local office like we're seeing recently. Mm. How many people came to the March for Our Lives? Um, it was, I think, a few thousand. It was like three, three to four thousand maybe. That's so, such a great example of a large peaceful gathering. Also, the women's, um, there was a March for Women's Rights right after Trump was elected. Completely peaceful. Yeah, I was there. I was there. Oh, it was awesome. Yeah. So completely peaceful, right? Yeah, it was, um, 
there was like a million people or some something crazy that's incredible yeah. yeah i couldn't agree more this empathy training and additional training for the police force and like it just seems so obvious we need a major reform of our police forces to make them more community support like it's something we someone people we look to for safety and support and have more of that perspective rather than this cops chasing robbers you know trying to like yeah that's occasionally needed but a lot of what police get called for is like a domestic violence dispute or yeah. you know it's like someone doesn't feel safe and they and they want to be reassured and some of the m more tragic cases i've read about has been like there was a, a black woman who called the police because she was fearing for her own safety and she ended up getting shot by the police that she had called Right. I mean, there's yeah. 800,000 police officers in the United States, right? If to think that all 800,000 of them are just mean killers is is not not re reality. Um, but there is a structure that they're all plugged into that needs mm. to be, that needs to be changed. Yeah, um, exactly. A lot of times they have to toughen up mentally and. Um, in order to emotionally survive what they go through every single day as well, where, you know, they put on the badge and they, they, you know, they don't know when they answer to a call, you know, especially in their training, in the training, they show the police officers, they don't show police officers videos of all the times cops mistreat people. They show police officers videos of cops being kind when they pull somebody over and then getting killed. Like they're literally putting fear in cops' minds, because in their they're trying to, from their perspective, they're trying to protect their police officers by making them all constantly like paranoid and like you know like you have to be tough. There is no room for empathy and softness. Like you have to hold that line in order to survive, like uh, physically and emotionally. But um, I don't think that's true. I think there is a way to you can be tough and hold a hard line and do what you have to do while still being in touch with your humanity. Yes, you know, but it, it's it's challenging. Yeah. But you know, if you're going to sign up to be a cop, it's like you got to be committed to doing this kind of training. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Hopefully, after this, that will take get more traction. More people will get on board, and it can be implemented. And, uh, yeah. <sighs> well, it's been Good it's talk. been great having you on the podcast. Um, before I let you go, just switching gears again, what all reality shows have you been on? You mentioned Glass House. <laughs> I just wanted uh, to know. <laughs> it's it's so funny. Like it's like such a different. It feels like it's from a different life. Um, but in my twenties, I was on MTV's True Life, and then I got on ABC's Glass House, and then like some stuff on PBS and NPR, like for different related stuff. Um, I I like to use the media to promote what I want to promote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's great that you're doing such positive things with the kind of platforms and following you've developed so yeah i i use it to like you know when i was on the glass house i was talking about the uh how you know the irresponsibilities of unchecked capitalism and you know things that i bet you when they were trying to cast me they didn't think i was going to be talking about on on live tv um hmm. Because I played their game. I play the game. I use it to get on when I need to get on. And then I, you could say that I'm an undercover agent. <laughs> but like in, in, in reverse, like I'm infiltrating them. <laughs> like everything's a tool. Money is a tool. The media is a tool. Communication, all the press, all this stuff you can use 
yeah. you have to be clever. It's it's a mind game, you know. Yeah, that w- this would be a whole other conversation, but this idea of reality TV has kind of taken over our world, and like the line between reality and entertainment and acting, and it's just all become so interconnected and kind of blurred and kind of. I mean, now we have a reality TV president. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And and j- once again, to tie it back in it, to, to what we we're talking about, it's like, you know, a lot of times people ask me the behind the scenes of it. And I go, no, like, yeah, it's, they don't give me, they didn't feed me lines to deliver, but the way that they, what they included and what they didn't include was manipulative. What, mm. The kind of music that they added to the scene and the way they would cut to somebody's reaction is manipulative. <laughs> That's, it, it, it's not what was actually happening, but it feels like something different. But then I go, yeah. okay, we could say that about mainstream reality shows, but then I can also say that about pandemic, and I could say that about alternative news. Everything mm. is guilty of the same thing. I'm a filmmaker. I went to film school too. And it's like everybody is manipulating everything in some way or another. I don't care if you're the mainstream news or alternative news, I see just as much manipulation in the alternative news and alternative documentaries. Right. It's it's just humans, man. It's like... Yeah. Well, we, yeah. again, it's the power of the story. That's what grabs us and holds us, I think, so. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate the conversation and the flow and all the different topics that we got to explore so thank you for having me really appreciate you thank you thank you so much for listening if you have found this podcast valuable there are many ways in which you can support it you can share it with friends and on your social media you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast listening app and you can visit our patreon page patreon.com backslash a state of mind for show notes and more information unique to each episode visit a state of And to learn more about my work as a therapist, meditation teacher, and coach, visit julianocean.us. And please don't hesitate to send me a message or email and let me know what you think and contribute to our conversation. Thank you so much for your support. It is listeners like you that make all this so very much worthwhile.